The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. All right, so I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 if you have not done so yet. Matthew 1, this is where we have been journeying through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we've walked through this list of 32 generations in order to trace a story. That's what we said a genealogy is. It's a a way of summarizing a story. And and the story we're tracing is obviously the the entire story of the Bible. And, And what we've done, I mean, we've only been able to skim the surface of things, obviously, because this is a huge story. And when I When I say that, that this is a huge story, I'm not just talking about its width. Like if we were to to chart it on like a timeline, like it covers a large span of time, almost uh, over, just over 2,000 years. I'm not talking about it being a huge story just because of its width, but also because of its depth. Because of the truth that it reveals. This is a story about God, creation, us. The story of God's redemption. And I, I think... This, this is the, the hugeness, and yes, that is a word. I looked it up. This is the hugeness of the story that Matthew wants us to feel. Not so much its width as much as its depth. He's compacted its width. He has not compacted its depth at all. I think that's the hugeness of the story he wants us to, to feel. Sure, it's a long list of names, but deeper than that, it reveals how all the hopes of God's people are fulfilled. It reveals how the love of God has not failed them. It reveals how their joy has not been destroyed. Remember, we've been following the themes of the Advent candles, hope, love, joy. This is going to to reveal, this story reveals how all these things come to fruition in, in Christ. How we, we, we sing a line in a little town of Bethlehem, don't we? How all the hopes and fears of all the years, all the years that we've been tracing through, all the hopes of God's people, all their fears that God's love would fail, all their fears that their joy would be destroyed, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in, in Christ. Matthew wants us to feel the hugeness of this story because it reveals the hugeness of the person to whom it will point. Jesus. All the hopes of God's people, all the promises made to Abraham, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. All the fears of God's people, that he wouldn't keep his promises, that his love would fail, that, that's countered in Jesus. All, all the fears that through, through all the years that their joy would be destroyed and lost forever, that's countered in Christ. Matthew looks at his readers, including us, and he says, everything that means anything in your life, All hope that you have, all love, all joy, everything that means anything is is defined by this story, the story of Christ. This is the hugeness of Jesus. It defines everything in our lives. This story, the reason Matthew has begun with it, is it's meant to define all that follows. 
Not just of who Christ is, but of who he is in our lives. This is the story that's meant to shape us. This has been the aim of Matthew all along, and it's been the aim of our entire Advent series. I I began this series talking about how we gather together week after week, and we sing week after week, and we come to this table, and we hear the word preached. Everything we do, it's all centered around the gospel, hearing it over and over again, singing it over and over again, participating in it over and over again, because we want to develop a type of spiritual muscle memory. Just like if you learn how to throw a ball, you do it enough that your muscles remember how to do it. We, we go through these practices so that our soul comes to know God and who he is and that he's trustworthy and that he's faithful. Our soul comes to know where our hope should be, where his love comes from, what gives us joy. This is what Brad talked about in the two sermons that he brought. That whatever we set before us shapes us. So let us set before us the gospel over and over and over again. This is the story that should define our lives. The hugeness of who Christ is should define everything for us. I, um, I grew up sleeping in a twin bed, which is just a mean name to give that size. Because it's only for one person. Anyway, so I grew up sleeping in a twin bed, and, and about from the time I was about 13 or 14, my head could touch the headboard and my foot could touch the footboard simultaneously. And so I decided that when I moved out, when I bought my own bed, I was going to buy a king-sized bed. And I did. Only one problem. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment. My bedroom was literally a bedroom. That's, that's all that would fit. And that bed is still the bed that Holly and I own to this day. And it's so stupid big that no matter where we live, it always determines the setup of our room. Like, we just bought new bedroom furniture. My wife has been asking. Our bed has just sat on one of those metal frames. She's been asking for, like, a bedroom suit for 14 years. We finally bought one. We couldn't buy the end tables because they won't fit. It determines what furniture we can buy. It determines how we set up the room to lay out everything about it. This is Matthew's goal in tracing out this huge story. To, to show us the hugeness of Christ in our life so that his story defines and determines everything about your life. He wants you to have a king-sized Christ. Not just a small portrait of Christ that you hang on the wall of your life. And it's nice to look at and talk about that you have it there. But you get to arrange everything else about your life however you want to. Bring into it what you want. Put out of it. No. He wants Christ to be so huge that he determines everything. Down to the furniture that you can buy. This this is what Matthew is, is aiming at. For us to see that all our hope, all the love of God, the joy, it's all found in Christ. So that's what we want to see this morning. We want to look straight at Jesus this morning. It's what Matthew does when he gets to the end of the genealogy. He just turns and fixates on Christ. So that's what, what we want to do. We want to see, catch a glimpse of just how great and glorious he is. We want to try to see the hugeness of Christ, to see how he defines All our hopes, the love of God, the joy of God in our life, how he defines everything that means anything. So let's try to see the hugeness of Christ. Read with me. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Let's just read the first sentence of verse 18. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew's just finished his genealogy. He feels compelled to explain further the way, it's key, the way that Jesus' birth happened. Why? He hasn't felt compelled to explain anyone else's birth in this family tree. I think we're all pretty familiar with the process anyway. Like, what is there to explain? Why tell us about the way Jesus' birth came about? I think there are at least two reasons. And to see them, we need to back up to verse 16, where the genealogy ends. Look at Matthew 1 and verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Reason number one that Matthew has to explain the way that Jesus was born is because Joseph is not his biological father. Like Verse 16 makes that painfully clear. Throughout this entire genealogy, Matthew has followed a very repetitive formula. That's what we all love about genealogies, right? Their repetitive nature just makes us want to snuggle up and read them before bed. Actually, we'll help you right before bed, but that's for another reason. Anyway, there's a repetitive nature to them, and this formula that Matthew has followed is A was the father of B, and B was the father of C, and C was the father of D, and so forth and so on. And that formula is how verse 16 starts. Jacob was the father of Joseph. So naturally, the next thing we anticipate hearing is Joseph was the father of Jesus, but that's not what we get. Instead, we're told that Joseph was the husband of Mary. Of whom? Of Mary was born Jesus. We're told Mary is Jesus' mama, but Joseph is not his papa. That's a problem. Like, does that not just frustrate you? Doesn't that make this entire genealogy pointless? I mean, the point, the primary point, was to show us that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful heir to David's throne, the rightful coming king. Uh, Yes, it's to show that he's the son of Abraham as well, but even from the beginning and all throughout, we've seen, it's pointing clearly again and again back to David. Matthew wants us to know he is king, Jesus. This whole list is like a giant drum roll that just ends with a wah-wah-wah. Jesus isn't in the line of David. Or is he? This is the first reason we need to see, that the first reason we need an explanation about the way Jesus was born. The way he was born is going to tell us why he's able to be in David's line, why he's able to be king. We'll get to that answer in just a minute. But reason number two, Reason number two that Matthew has to explain the way Jesus is born is because of what Jesus is called. Look at the end of verse 16. Jesus was born who is called Christ, Christos, anointed one, or Messiah. The anointed one, the the Savior. Since the beginning of this genealogy, we have been looking for this person. Have we not? We, we, we've been looking for one who could be the Christ, one who could be 
the Savior. We've been looking for that person because that's what's been promised to us since the beginning of the genealogy, even since before the genealogy. If you remember back to the first part of our Advent series, we actually went back before Matthew's genealogy. We went all the way back to creation. We saw God's perfect creation. We saw how we corrupted it through sin. We were at peace with God, but we broke that, became enemies of God. And God loves his creation. He won't leave it condemned underneath sin and death. He's, he's going to cleanse it. And that's good news until we realize that it means that it must be cleansed from us. We're the corruptors that must be removed. And we call that removal death. Our sin deserved death. But immediately, like as soon as we saw that that horrid reality, immediately in Genesis 3.15, God was already making promises of salvation. He promised that one would come, an offspring who would be born of a woman who would be our Savior, save us from our sin and the death that it deserved. He would be a peacemaker, one who would restore the peace that we had lost with God. He would be an anointed one. He would be Christ. And all throughout Matthew's genealogy, the promise of a coming Christ has been reaffirmed again and again and again. It was reaffirmed to Abraham. Abraham was promised a global hope. He was promised that through him would come an offspring, and through that offspring, salvation would spread to the nations. Salvation to the ends of the earth through a coming one, an anointed one, a Savior, a Christ David, King David, was promised that he would have an offspring who would become a forever king in his place, who would rule perfectly forever over God's people, always like everything restored back to the way it was when God created it originally with God as king. David would have an offspring who'd be a perfect king for God's people. This anointed one would come, this Savior, this this Christ. And all throughout Matthew's genealogy, We have been looking for this this Christ who would bring about the fulfillment of hope, of love, of joy. And everyone that we have looked at has failed. Judah failed. David failed. Solomon failed. Zerubbabel failed. It doesn't matter. Pick any name out of this lineup and they all fail. Why? Why? Why can't any of them be the Christ? Because they need a Christ themselves. None of them can be saviors because they need to be saved. They can't make peace with God. They don't have it themselves. We've seen failure over and over and over again. But now, now in verse 16, here's Jesus who is called Christ. Could it be true? Could, could, it be tr- could, could he be the anointed one, the savior, the peacemaker? If so, how? How could it be true? What makes Jesus different from everyone else who has come before? Why can he be the Christ? This is the second reason we need to see the way, we need an explanation of the way Jesus was born. Because the way he was born will show us why he can be the Christ when no one else could be. We need to know about the way Jesus was born because it will show us why he can be king and why he can be Christ. 
In other words, the way of Jesus' birth will show us the why of Jesus' worth. The way of his birth will show us the why of his worth, why he can be king and Christ. Let's, let's look at the way of his birth and put these pieces together. So Matthew 1, verse 18, but we'll keep going. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Mary has been betrothed to Joseph. Biblical betrothal, a little bit different than modern day engagements. Betrothal was a legally binding relationship made before witnesses. It had paperwork and everything. And, and in order to to get out of a betrothal, you also had to have paperwork. You actually had to go through a legal divorce process. When you were betrothed to one another, you already referred to each other as husband and wife. Didn't have fiancé. Didn't speak French anyway. But didn't have fiancé. They referred to each other as husband and wife to get out of it. They had to go through a legal divorce. I mean, this sounds like full-fledged marriage, but it wasn't. There were some differences. Uh, this betrothal, the way it was different is, is typically this betrothal period was about a year long leading up to marriage. And during that time, the wife would continue to live with her parents, live with her family, while the husband made preparations. And during this time, there would be no physical relationship, no sexual relationship between the two of them. That wasn't considered kosher until the official ceremony when the husband would come and he would take his bride home to be with him, to live with him, and the two at that point would come together geographically, physically, every way. Joseph and Mary haven't come together yet. They're in the midst of this betrothal period, and it's at this point that Mary turns up pregnant. I do not recommend... Anyone who finds themselves in this situation using Mary's excuse does not sound very believable. Obviously, to Joseph and to everyone else, this looks like one thing. It looks like unfaithfulness. And so we read in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This type of situation in the first century, it was common for there to be a, a big trial held and the offending party, in this case Mary, would be put to public shame her, d- d- during the divorce proceedings. Her, her reputation would just be left in shreds and tatters. The Old Testament would prescribe uh, stoning in this situation, death. Jews couldn't do that in the first century because they couldn't execute the death penalty because they were occupied by Rome. So they took it to the next best extreme in their mind, a public shaming. And Joseph, here's, here's Joseph's dilemma. Joseph is a righteous man. He's a just man. That, that means he's, he's a keeper of the law. So in other words, he's got this moral conviction that he cannot go through with this marriage because in their cultural context, to do so would be a seeming admission of guilt. It would be like Joseph saying, yes, I'm the father of this child, and yes, I participated in sexual immorality. Joseph is an upstanding man, a man of character, and he said, I can't do that. I'm a keeper of the law. I've got to honor God. I've got to keep the law, so I can't go through with this marriage. However, Joseph is also a man of compassion. He cares for Mary. Is is this not similar to the roots of the gospel story? 
God a righteous, good, just God who will not let sin go without judgment, yet compassionate, kind, caring, loving towards us? How will this be resolved in Joseph? Joseph decides he will divorce her quietly, a quiet, private proceeding, non-public divorce, trying to save face for both of them. And here we get one last picture that even the most righteous, compassionate man can't do what the gospel can do. Even in his best attempt to save face, he will fail to be a savior. Joseph is about to find out that he's not a savior in this situation. Not for himself and not for Mary. Look at the heart of the text, verses 20 to 23. It says, But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when we read these verses... I think we typically put all of our emphasis on the miracle being described here, virgin birth. And, and that's a good instinct. We should do that. That's where Matthew's emphasis is falling. And we're, we're going to get there ourselves in just a moment. But before we do, I think, I think that often in our haste to rush towards the miracle, we miss something significant going on with this man. With Joseph. He, he's the one who's being spoken to, and he's told to do something because of who he is. Don't gloss over that. Look at it again with me. Joseph is being reminded of his identity, and then because of his identity, he's given two instructions. The angel says, Joseph, son of David. That's a reminder of who he is. It's a reminder of his, his identity, and on the basis of that identity, he's given two instructions. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Instruction number one, put a ring on it. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Instruction number two, take Mary as your wife and name this baby. Joseph clearly understands those as commands because that's exactly what he does. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. What did he do? He took his wife. He took Mary as his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph, I want you to claim Mary and I want you to claim Jesus. That's, that's the instruction being given to him by, by being told to name Jesus. That's, that's adoption language right there. Naming a child in first century Israel, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about picking out a name for a kid. Joseph and Mary don't even get to pick the name. The name's Jesus. I just told you. 
make it a lot easier in my household if God would just tell us what to name our children. I don't know about y'all, but in my household, that was World War One, Two, Three, and Four right there. Anyway, to name a child was this public bestowing of the legal name, the name that would be in genealogies, the name that would be registered there in the family tree for tax purposes, for worship purposes in the temple. It was the bestowing of the legal name, and that was the responsibility of the legal father. That action ensured the official status of the son, his official title and rights and and heir. In other words, for Joseph to name Jesus, this action makes Jesus the rightful son of David because Joseph is the son of David. He is in David's line. This genealogy doesn't end with a wah-wah. It ends with a clear confirmation of a king. Jesus is the rightful king from the line of David. This is why we need to see the way of Jesus' birth, so that we might see the hugeness of his worth. He's King Jesus. King, the promised forever king, coming through the line of David. It's him. But his worth gets even bigger than that. Because Jesus is not just the king, he's also the Christ the second reason we needed to see the way of his birth, right? Matthew's already been unfolding it for us. Matthew has already set the reality in front of us repeatedly that Jesus is the Christ. How's he done that? He's done that by repeatedly showing us how his birth is miraculous. Look, Look again. Verse 18. Matthew himself told us before Joseph and Mary ever came together and consummated the marriage, Mary was pregnant. How? Matthew says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, an angel tells us that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 23, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Again and again and again. From multiple sources. From himself, from an angel, from a prophet. Matthew wants to make the miracle clear. Jesus' conception did not come about like everyone else's. It was, it was a miracle brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit of, of God. Why? Well, why have the birth of Jesus happen in this way? This is not helpful for evangelism, God. People think I'm stupid when I lead with this. It's because he loves to shame the wisdom of this world. And by the foolishness of the gospel, he saves. Why bring about the birth of Jesus this way? Why the virgin birth? I think we get hints in verses 21 and 23. Both hints have to do with names. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, that's the Greek form, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua literally means Yahweh saves, or God saves. And interestingly, we're told that Mary's son will be given this name because he 
will save his people from their sin. The name means God saves. But we're told this baby will save. What could that mean? What I think it means? Could, could this baby be God in the flesh? I think verse 23 answers that question clearly. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Just in case we don't get the point, Matthew translates the Hebrew. It means God with us. Why have the birth of Jesus happen in this miraculous way? So that we might see that the hugeness of who he is. Yes, he's 100% man. For he was born to a woman. He had flesh, blood, and bone like you and I. When he was a baby and he was woken by cattle, he cried. He was a real human being. And yet, he was not born like any other man. No, no his birth was brought about by the Holy Spirit of God because he is 100% God. 100% man, 100% God. That this reality is revealed by the virgin birth. It's pointed to by the virgin birth. The, the reality of the incarnation that God took on flesh. Fully God, fully man. Jesus is the God-man. This is what the virgin birth points to. This is why he alone could be the Christ. No one else before him. This is why he alone could be the, the anointed one, the Savior, the peacemaker, who gives us peace with God again. Judah couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. Zerubbabel couldn't do it. No one else in Matthew's entire genealogy could do it because they could not be saviors because they themselves needed to be saved. They couldn't save anyone else. They needed saving. But Jesus... Jesus is fully God. He has no sin. He is in no need of saving. He can do the saving. How will he do it? Jesus himself answers that question later on in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The son of, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to ser be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In chapter 26, he says he's going to do it by the spilling of his blood. For my sin, I deserved to die, but Jesus died in my place. My substitute, making the peace that I could make. He, he really could substitute himself for me. He really could represent me because he really was fully man. He could represent mankind because he was of us. The penalty for our sin was only one that mankind should pay. But none of us could pay it. Only God could pay it. We need a man to represent us. We need a God to save us. We need a God-man who can make peace. Only Jesus could be the Christ, the Savior, the peacemaker. And Colossians 1.20 says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. Romans 5 says that it's by faith. We believe, we trust, 
We see the value of Jesus. We treasure him. We bring him to our we, we, we lean on him. We, we trust in him. This is what faith is. It's a, it's a trusting. It's a treasuring. So that all who trust in him, through him, they have peace with God. That we who deserved God's wrath, God took on flesh himself, poured his own wrath out on himself to give us peace with him so that we might have him forever. That's what 1 Peter 3.18 says so beautifully. Christ died once for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. God took on flesh to make peace between us and God so that we might get God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This was the hope of God's people, the hope of all the years, that they would be saved to be his people forever, get him forever. And those hopes are fulfilled in Christ. All the fears of God's people, that his love would fail, that their joy would be lost, those fears are countered and killed in Christ. The hopes and fears of all the years, they're met in him because he has brought peace. He is the advent of peace, the coming of peace. This is how he fulfills our hopes. This is how he brings the love of God to us. This is how he makes God our joy forevermore. He makes it all possible by making peace. Glory to God in the highest. To Christ, who is God, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you see the hugeness of Christ? That he alone brings peace so that he alone is your hope your love, your joy, forever. That's what this genealogy is meant to illustrate. No one else there, no one else anywhere could bring hope. Christ and Christ alone. No one else could, could pour out the love of God in our hearts. Christ and Christ alone. No one else could be our joy that satisfies forever. Christ and Christ alone. Do you see the hugeness of Christ. Does, does this gospel story and its largeness, its grandness, does, does this gospel story determine and define all of your life? This is the story that defines the world. And it is the story that defines your world and my world, whether we live according to it or not. It has a narrative about those who do not live according to this story. They're part of it because it's the true story of the world. It's the story that defines this world. It's the story that defines your world. Just real quick, just real quick, think about Joseph one more time as we, as we unpack some of these implications this story defined the world around Joseph. It, the world of his people, they were a hoping people for a coming Savior, longing for, for full joy in the love of God. It defined the world around him. It defines the world around us still, whether acknowledged or not. 
all of the hope that people long for, all of the joy, all of the love, it's all found in God and Christ. It's the story that defined the world around him. But the text before us, in this text, Joseph came to see this story didn't just define the world, it defined his world. This story that we've read, it, this, this story, it, it showed Joseph why he's the son of David. Because God would use that in this story of the gospel. It showed Joseph why he's a poor carpenter. Because God would use that in this story, the gospel. Show Joseph why he married Mary. Show Joseph why he's from Nazareth. Show Joseph why, like fill in the blank with any detail from his life. Every detail of Joseph's life was providentially prepared for this story. Every detail given eternal meaning. The same is true of your life. The family you're from, good, bad, or otherwise. The job you have or don't have, the place you you live, your singleness, or your being married, having kids or or not having kids, all the joys in your life, or, or all the tragedies, all the sorrows, all the pain, every victory, every moment is providentially prepared for God's story, filled with eternal meaning for His glory. Everything about you is grafted into this story through Christ and all of it used to glorify Christ, all of it given eternal meaning. Is that how you see your life? Is that how you see the victories? Is that how you see the challenges and the tragedies, the sorrows? Is that how you see your job? Is your job just a mundane clock in, clock out, just punching it in order to be able to pay bills? Or do you see it in life? Is it defined by the gospel? That I'm to work as if I'm working unto the king because I am. And so I do my job with quality character and with good because I'm doing good to my neighbor and to those around me. And I'm going to show by, by the way I do my work the worth of Christ. The gospel redefines every detail of our, of our lives. Is the gospel story that defines the world, is it defining your world? Determining how you see Everything. Another way to ask the question is, is Christ huge in your life? King-sized, like my bed, it determines the layout of the room. Is he a king-sized Christ? I have a challenge for you, for us, or a dare for 2018. Some of you like that kind of thing as you go into the new year. A challenge or a dare for us. I want to dare us, as shades, for 2018, to not focus on growing in Christ this year. I did not say that wrong. I want to dare us to not focus on growing in Christ this year, but instead on Christ growing in us. I want to focus on not, not growing in Christ, but Christ growing in us, becoming huge in our 
lives. I want us to to strive to see more and more of his hugeness until it, it crowds out everything else and it determines and defines everything. This is how you truly grow in Christ, by him growing in you. Not by a focus on yourself and what you need to do to grow, but by a focus on him and who he is. And he grows large. And your life takes shape around him. This is how you grow in Christ, by him growing in you. Prince Caspian. It's the second book in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. It's the second book if you read them in the right order. And in this book, Lucy, uh, one of the main characters, she encounters Aslan, who she'd encountered before in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She encounters Aslan again. For those of you that don't know, Lucy's a little girl. Aslan is a lion. And in the world of Narnia, he, he represents Christ. He's a Christ-like figure. And when she sees him again, she's elated, she's excited, she, she embraces him with tears of joy. And once she finally steps back and looks at him, Lewis writes, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Aslan hasn't grown at all. Lucy has. So why does he seem bigger? I mean, the opposite typically happens as we grow up, right? You return to your bedroom as a kid or maybe to your old elementary school and everything seems smaller. It hasn't actually changed in size at all. We know that. We've just gotten bigger. Our perspective has changed. But the opposite seems to be happening with Aslan. And that's because C.S. Lewis wants us to see that the opposite happens with Christ. Christ, like Aslan, does not grow, does not change. Same yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he is. The great, glorious God overall who took on flesh. He is God in the highest. He is who he is. He doesn't change. But as we truly grow as believers, our perspective changes. And and just like Lucy, who now sees more of who Aslan is, we see more of who Christ is. And instead of him growing smaller with time, it looks as if he grows larger and larger. Every year as you grow, says Aslan, you will find me bigger. This is what growth in Christ looks like. We see more and more of his glory and his hugeness grows in us and our lives take shape around it. Shades, let's take the dare to see more and more of the hugeness of Christ. Until his gospel story determines and defines the shape of everything in our lives. All our hope, all love, all joy defined by the one who has made all peace. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Amen.